this morning we're going to begin a new series, 11 weeks through the book of Joshua from the Old Testament. I felt like we needed to begin 2017, the second decade in the history of the River Church, with a great compelling story. A story that compels us to move forward with God. A story that reminds us of God's faithfulness and His promise and something new, something better, something greater. We're going to be following a great leader, Joshua. A a, a phenomenal leader who's going to lead us through Joshua, lead the people to the promised land, to the inheritance that God has for them. Now, spiritually speaking, that is something that you and I to this day, we're not thinking land. We're not thinking boundaries. We're thinking promise, inheritance, something more, something better, something greater that God wants to do. It's a movement. And so the series title for our 11 weeks is Moving Forward with God. Joshua is going to lead the conquest, lead the people into the land. That's where we're headed. It's going to be an exciting adventure. It's going to be an exciting series. It's going to motivate us to ask the question, what more does God have for us as individuals and as a church? You know, uh, Joshua has 24 chapters, so we're going to um, combine some of the the, the sections, and uh, we're going to accomplish this in 11 weeks. So we're going to move through it rather quickly. Early on, we're going to tell the story chapter by chapter. But I like this story because the story reminds me of what God wants for us as well. He wants to bring us into a land, into a promise, into something new. You know, if you read the Bible or get the Bible app, you'll, you would have noticed that the verse for the year for the Bible app is our verse as a church. Isaiah chapter 43, verse 18. Behold, I will do something new. Will you not see it? I will build that road in the desert, a river in the wilderness. That's, that's the key verse, according to the Bible app for this year, that God is going to do something new. Now, if I was part of you know, Australian church, or if I was part of one of those big movements, they say, God is about to do something new. It's new. It's a new start. I don't know if that's Australian. <laughs> Not very good, Martin, right? We've got a I've got a Scott, I've got a, a, a pastor from the UK in our audience, and I just totally blew it. But he's definitely going to correct me afterwards. But it's God is going to do something new, right? And so what is this new thing that God is going to do? What's he going to do through the book of Joshua in the context of our church? Well, that's what we're going to discover. And this morning we're going to look at chapter 1 as we begin this journey. I want to read Joshua chapter 1. It's the sixth book in the Old Testament. It follows the Pentateuch, which is the law. God creates the earth. People rebel. And then God designs a massive redemptive plan to rescue humanity from sin. That's the story of the Bible. And in the first five chapters, God lays out a plan to bring his people, back into relationship with Him. It's all about coming back into relationship with God. Through the law and the tabernacle, Moses leads the people out of Egypt, 400 years of slavery, wandering the desert, poised, ready to then occupy a land that God had decided and set apart for these people so that He might bless them 
and in Genesis chapter 12, verse 2, become a great nation, but not just simply to receive the blessings of God. It is always what you do with what God gives you. It's not about receiving something for yourself. It's becoming now a blessing to someone else. It's a blessing to other people. So in Genesis, God's design was a great nation, a great people to be a blessing to all other people. And that's the story of Joshua now poised, ready to go into this promised land. He now, Moses has died and Joshua is going to take the lead. And in Joshua chapter 1 now, it comes about that the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, that the Lord spoke to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' servant. Joshua is just a servant. I mean, he was, he was part of that early group that planned to make the trip into the promised land through Moses' leadership. That fell apart. But Joshua stayed faithful to the plan. And now that Moses is dead, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise, cross this Jordan, and you and all this people to the land which I am giving you to the sons of Israel. There's movement. There's movement. They're going somewhere. Every place upon which the sole of your foot treads, I have given it to you, just as I spoke to Moses. From the wilderness to this Lebanon, even as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites, as far as the great sea toward the setting of the sun, will be your territory. It had a purpose. It wasn't just simply to occupy a land. This is not some aggressive, hostile takeover simply for the purpose of possessing something. But it was that they would become a great nation, a great people, in order to bless others. It's always God's purpose. Old Testament and New Testament. And we see early in this section this idea of a movement. God is a God of movement. He's on the move. He invites us to join. More growth. Something new. It reminds us of Isaiah 3. 40, 43, 18, as I mentioned, God is going to do something new. He's always about something new. And so in this case, we are going to see this new thing that God is going to do. He's going to move us forward as a church as we continue to pursue him. It, it reminds me of something athletic, this idea of moving forward. It's, it has energy in it, doesn't it? I mean, it has excitement. I mean, there's, there's going to be something exciting that's about to happen. Now, some of us, we're a little scared of that, right? We're a little intimidated of change. We prefer just to kind of stay where we are. Let's not upset anything. Let's, move, let's not move forward. Let's just do a better job where we are. Like, let's just circle the wagons kind of a mentality. And that's not the kind of God we see in the Old Testament. We see a God who is on the move. And it may feel intimidating but watch what God does. God has called us to move further into, I believe, the South Bay as a church, like Israel, going to the promised land, not to, for some hostile takeover, not to occupy a land, but to infuse it with the blessing of God through our lives to a greater degree, to a greater depth, to a greater influence. That's what I believe God is doing and he's going to do that in many, many different ways this year. So as we begin this great epic story, this compelling story, this great leader in this adventure, let's look at Joshua chapter 1 together. And I just want to look at several what I believe to be components 
of a very strong and compelling life objective, a person, a re- purpose, a reason why we might even be placed on this earth. You think about it. What is it that drives you? What's the purpose behind your life? And how do you maintain movement as you move forward with that purpose? Identifying what God has for you, how do you keep moving forward? Well, Joshua identifies in chapter 1 four components of this strong, compelling life objective that you might be living for. First of all, it requires a strong leader. Second, a compelling objective. Third, a war will be fought. And fourth, a response to be all in. I mean, it requires all four of those. You know, as I think about it, I don't think of the river as just simply a gathering on Sunday morning. In fact, Denise and I were talking about this a couple days ago. And we thought of the many times that we have seen this church in action outside of the context of simply a worship service. Yes, it's important. Yes, we need to come together and worship the Lord. Continue to focus on vision. Move forward with one another as a clear vision and mission as a church. But our church functions in so many different ways as we reach out and connect and care for people. And we've seen it in so many ways. Our church is most powerful when we are released to move forward with God in unique and powerful ways throughout the South Bay and around the world. It's a response of being part of this community, this church. We've seen it over and over again. Our finest hour is outside the boundaries of this Sunday morning experience. It happens Sunday, but it happens Monday all the way through Saturday, all throughout the week. And then sometimes even after the service, someone comes in and they have a special need or there is something happening in their life and it is crucial that we connect with them. And I'm trapped up here or some of you are up here and you're talking and you're connecting with people and I look back and there's a group huddled around somebody caring for them. Last year, I saw one of those moments. It's one of those moments was right there. And this person needed help in that moment. And the church gathered around, individuals gathered around. That's, that's a compelling objective. That's a compelling vision for your life. How do we do that and demonstrate God's love more in the South Bay? Well, here's four things. A strong leader, compelling objective, a war to be fought, and fourth, a response to be all in. So first is the leader. You've got to follow someone. We have trouble, don't we, this day and age with following leaders. We're not sure who to follow. In fact, I was actually in a text conversation about our grounded group with Katrine Cooper. And she was asking about the new series. I told her it was Joshua. And she was, oh, I'm familiar with that. But I, I don't have a lot of details. And I said, well, it's about a strong leader and a compelling vision. And she texted me. It was very interesting. She texted back a comment about leadership. And in that, she said, it's such a concept to follow somebody. I like that. It's such a concept to follow somebody. And I thought, what does she mean by that? And I thought, that's it. It is not easy to follow after somebody. We are not good followers. We're better leaders. We pump our own gas. We work out when we want to work out. We go to the grocery store and we check out on our own. We do most things on our own because we feel most capable of getting it done ourselves. We're not very good followers, are we? And God is calling us to follow a great leader, especially a good leader. 
And Joshua was a good leader for the people. Look at what it says about him. Joshua, the son of Nun, he was a servant of Moses. His whole life began as a leader, as a servant. Uh, uh, Carl will tell you, he just wrote a book on servant leadership through the life of Jesus. And I love the first thing you said in that book. I just got a copy last night. I haven't had a chance to read it. But he begins in John chapter 13 and works through the end of John describing Jesus as a leader. And it begins when he picked up the towel to wash the disciples' feet. That was what, Carl, you're saying is the critical moment in the leadership of Jesus Christ. Demonstration of servanthood. And there it is, Joshua, a servant of Moses. But I love this. I would say the critical component of a leader is that they're willing to serve others. But they do it out of a deep sense of trust in God. See, in that passage in John 13, Jesus knew where he had come from. He was connected with the Father and was able to serve. Because of the depth of his relationship with God, it says, he knew who he was. He knew where he was going. He was able to pick up a towel and do something as demeaning as wash a person's dirty feet as they came in off the road. See, it's based upon the depth of a person's character that they're able to serve others and demonstrate the greatest quality of leadership. I've read a lot of books on leadership. The one I find that Joshua demonstrates is this one, the servant. He served under Moses. But if you go back to the story of where we actually discover this guy, it's back in Numbers when Moses is about to actually lead the people into the promised land. And he sends out these spies. And in Numbers, they come back. It says the spies come back and they give a report. And the report is very interesting. So they go out and they do come back. And then in Genesis, or excuse me, Numbers chapter 13 uh, verse 27 says, it's certainly the land does flow with milk and honey and it has much fruit. So Moses, what you're saying about the land, what God is giving us is absolutely good. There's no question what God has for us is good. But verse 28, the people who live in the land are strong. The cities are fortified. And they're very large. And moreover, we saw the descendants of Anak there at Malachi is living in the land of Negev, the Hittites and the Jebusites and the Amorites and the Canaanites. Caleb, along with Joshua, quiets the people. We should, by all means, go up and take possession, for we shall surely overcome it. Where did he get that kind of bravery? Where did he come up with that kind of courage? He trusted in what God said. And on the basis of that character that Joshua believed in God, he was the kind of man that we should follow. Leadership, I believe, is demonstrated by a depth of character. And the greater the character, the greater the ability to lead. I think that's the primary, primary characteristic of a good, solid leader. Someone who's able to able to go deep with God, trust God, and know where God wants to lead, most certainly knowing where he's got, where he wants to go. But he leads out of a depth of character, out of a strong sense of, I will trust you, God. There are great obstacles in the way, but I will lean on you. I will trust you. Um, 
I think that's absolutely critical in our discussion. You know, they say that a leader who is leading and no one's following is simply taking a walk. Joshua was able to rally the people to follow him. He was a great leader. They saw his character. They saw that he trusted God. They knew that he, they, he believed where God wanted to take them. And on the basis of that, the people followed a great leader. Uh, I remember following a great leader once. I was in Chicago, Illinois, working for a church, Willow Creek. Bill Hybels had planted the church many years before that. And I had an opportunity to serve under his brother, Dan, for several months. Dan was not a pastor. Dan was in charge of the 130 acres, the grounds, of this beautiful facility called Willow Creek. And I reported to Dan for several months during my time at Willow Creek. And I remember going into the pole barn, not the office. And the pole barn was where they kept the equipment that kept the grass and the kept the driveways open during the snowy season and the winter and, and, and all it kept all everything beautiful so that when people would come onto the property they would have this amazing experience with God and be this beautiful church and it was Dan's job to manage a staff of people to just to beautify a beautiful environment. And he would be sitting in his office every morning with the door closed and you could see through the window and he was studying his Bible drinking a cup of coffee. And he would get in before anyone else. And that's the way he started his day. And then he would gather us all together, the staff, and then he would say, okay, what's everybody going to do? We chatted. We all had a cup of coffee. We talked a little bit. We connected relationally. And then he said, okay, everybody knows what they're going to do. Let's go do it. And he led. And he led by example. This was a man of deep character, deep trust of God. He loved the Lord. And what he was doing may seem insignificant, totally insignificant in terms of the kingdom, but it was absolutely significant in terms of gaining followers to follow him to, to, to serve the Lord. And I saw a man, and I remember leaving, and I wrote him a two-page letter and said, Dan, you were the best boss I've ever worked for in my entire life. You taught me more lessons. I'm indebted to you. Thank you. Thank you for your leadership. That's the man that is in charge of leading. I want to be more like that. I believe God is calling us to raise up more leaders in our community, to move our church deeper into the, into the South Bay. But it begins with becoming that kind of a leader. We are a church, not of a lot of followers, but a lot of leaders. We need to learn to follow, follow the Lord, follow good leadership, but also become good leaders. I think that's number one. Otherwise, we will never accomplish the objective for our life. The second thing I wrote down is a compelling objective. And you notice the text here, going back to Joshua, of what they were to accomplish. It says that I want you to go in and take the land, verse 2. I mean, we find this, territory, verse 4. Verse 6, the land, verse 6. 5, excuse me, 4, the territory. 6, the land. Wherever you will go, it's... Verse 7, you will have success. Wherever you go, verse 9, he's talking about a geography. It's Canaan. It's the land of Canaan. It's a particular area. It's where Israel is right now as a nation. But I want you to notice something. It was far more than simply a geography. The compelling objective was not simply land, but it's what the land represented to the people. 
Notice that we have actually a clue in the text here in two references, verse 13 and 15. It says in verse 13, Remember the word which Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, saying, The Lord your God gives you rest and will give you this land. There's a connection, a relationship between rest and land. What God wants to do is bring his people into an inheritance, a promised land, which represents God's rest. What God wants to give you is his rest. More of his rest. Verse It says in 15, you must become valiant warriors. And then it says, until the Lord gives your brothers rest as he gives you. See, and then you possess this land. I believe the objective of this nation was not simply to occupy a land, but to inherit a promise of more of God's rest. And I see three things in the Old Testament that describe what this rest represents. It's three things. It's number one, it's peace. I wrote down presence and power. It's all three of those. First of all, God's rest represents a peace. Most certainly, when Israel was to go into the land, they would have secure boundaries and borders, and they would experience this sense of peace from conflict. They would finally be at a place where they could rest Rest from the war. Now, war was common in the ancient Near East. This is the only way to live, was to defend your borders. And yet, they would find this peace, this from constant warfare, protection from an enemy, undisturbed peace. Psalm 116, verse 6 through 7 says, Return to you and rest, O my soul. For the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. Return to the Lord's rest, O my soul. This idea of rest from a struggle. I think it spiritually represents the idea that we need that rest from God. That we're in a struggle. We're constantly in conflict. But it's something else as well. I think, second of all, it's presence. And this idea of presence, Exodus 33, verse 14 says... He says, my presence shall go with you and I will give you rest. I mean, in Exodus, God is the one saying, my presence will go with you. So there's a presence of God. Where God is present, there is rest. You want rest in your life? You want to find greater rest? It's in the presence of God. The more of the presence of God that you have, the more rest you experience in your life. And so this idea of presence is this idea of him, more of God. Now, we know in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 8, the writer of Hebrews is describing a deeper rest. And he says in verse 8, if Joshua had given them rest, he would not have spoke of another day. And so the writer of the New Testament looks back at this scene and says, if the people had listened, and they had gone with Joshua to receive this rest from God, then I wouldn't have had to say what I'm about to say, that a greater rest is coming. And in Hebrews chapter 4, it's referring to Jesus as the great rest. So this, in one sense, is looking forward to even a greater rest, which is Jesus himself. So the land represents what God wants to bring the people, which is rest, which is Jesus himself in the New Testament. I mean, it's very clear. 
And so it's his presence in our lives. But third, it's power. And I get that from Deuteronomy chapter 12, 2 and 5. It says, a place where Yahweh's name shall abide. Wherever the name of Yahweh is, there is great power. Great power. We think of it in terms of Jesus. When you pray in the name of Jesus, what happens? There's great power. Things happen. I'm reading Batterson's book on, on uh, Draw the Circle, which is the, his second book from Circle Maker, all about prayer. And it's a 40-day prayer experiment. And you read one chapter a day. And you're praying for something. You're circling something. And you're believing God for something. You keep circling it over and over and over again. And in it, he says that if God is not changing your circumstances, he's changing you. And what he's doing is he's bringing more of himself into your life. Because you cannot give away what you do not have. If you do not have the rest, you cannot give it away to anybody else. And what God wants us to do in our lives is to bring more of his rest. Now, the Greeks understood this. They had a Greek term for this, the Eastern Orthodox Church. In 200 AD, many years after this event, this idea of rest in the Old Testament, Nuach, they understood rest to be something of a, of a, of a spiritual movement within the soul. It represented silence and solitude and deep prayer. And the Egyptian peasants of 200 AD would move north into the desert and that they would move away from the conflicts in the world and and all of the, the things that conflicted their faith. And they became the desert fathers in solitude and silence and prayer. And they termed it rest. It was considered rest. But it wasn't rest from pain. Rest from conflict. It was rest in Christ. It was more of God. And as God invaded their lives in the desert through these long stents of prayer and solitude in the desert, they would experience greater power and ability to have more compassion. So it was an outward expression of the inward work of God. He was about changing them. And then what happened is they were greater at being more compassionate. Their solitude led to significant discussions with others. It wasn't they were always silent. It's just that in their silence, there was power in their words. In their solitude and prayer, they became more compassionate and caring for other people. That's what God wants to instill and infuse in us so that we might become a blessing to others. Do you see that? That's an objective worthy of our call. That's what God wants to do. Now, there's a war. Number three, there is a war to be fought. We have to understand that in the text. Look at it. The land is already occupied. We know that. Numbers 13 tells us. The Melekites are there. The Jebusites. The Canaanites. There's, there's people already inhabiting the land. And that creates an historical problem for us. I mean, we can't get away from this. I mean, we understand it spiritually that the war is a spiritual battle that anything God wants to do that's new in your life, there's going to be a battle, right? You know that. You, you, don't, you don't get away free. If you really want to see change, if you want to grow, if you want to step out and you want to be more sacrificial, you want to be more compassionate, or you want to become a leader, or you want to grow in some area of your life, there will be a battle. We know that. An internal battle. Satan does not want to push us forward as a church. Does not want to see greater influence in our church. 
Reminds me of what C.S. Lewis says in Screwtape Letters in chapter 7 when he talks about this idea that if you can just get Christians to understand the concept of conscientious objector, and they just kind of circle the wagons and become pacifists, and they don't bother anybody else, and they just kind of become a clique society, as Lewis describes it, then you've won the battle. Because that's not God. God is a God of movement. God is a God of change. God is a God of influence. God wants to take us and create a, build a greater influence in the South Bay. But there's going to be a battle to be won. Now, that's the spiritual lesson. It says that there are people in the land, but you must go forward. The problem historically with this, and I'm just going to mention it this morning, we're going to deal with it as we move forward, is the question of why would God call the Israelites to utterly destroy cities? Men, women, and children. You ever thought that? You ever wondered, what is going on here? That sounds like genocide. I mean, this is mass murder. This is not a God that we understand from all of the readings of the Bible. And yet we have to understand that what we're looking at is a very small portion of biblical history. When we look at that and ask that question, why did it happen here? We have to also look at God's greater plan and movement of his people and even Jesus himself into the New Testament when he was being arrested. The disciples pulled out their swords, cut off one of the Roman centurion's ear, and Jesus says, put your swords away. This is not that kind of a battle. Yes, there, it happened in the Old Testament. Yes, it was necessary. We may not fully understand why, but it was a moment in time, and it did happen that way. By the way, it is probably one of the greatest arguments for believing in God today. There are more skeptics and more people that look critically at God because he allowed this to happen. And we need to have some kind of an answer, some kind of an explanation, because we know that's not true of God. I mean, we know that, don't we? That this is not an evil God that's destroying people, that takes pleasure in this, that has it out for others. We know that God takes no pleasure in the destruction of evil. We know that several cases, God says, I am slow to anger, and I want all to come to salvation. God's heart and desires for all. And we see that in the Old Testament. We see Nineveh. Nineveh responds, repents, and God does not judge them. We see in, Je- in Jericho, in a few chapters, Rahab is the woman of faith who says, I believe in your God, and she is spared in all of her family. That God wants to spare humanity, and yet it's fallen into a place of rebellion against God. And he must be just as he is merciful. Justice and mercy go together. So when you try to pull justice away and say, why is God doing that? He is doing that because he must judge anything that is rebellion against him so that he can be merciful and loving, compassionate and kind. There's lots of reasons. This was, this was the way the ancient Near East worked. I mean, what we find Israel is living in a culture where they defended themselves and they inherited land by warfare. There was no other way. Doesn't happen today. Doesn't need to happen today. Shouldn't happen today. But back then, that's what had to happen in order for a country to secure its borders. 
I mean, think of it. Israel would not have been able to become a great nation by holding a Tupperware party. I mean, what good would that do? Invite your neighbors, the Canaanites, over? Exchange Tupperware? I mean, it, there's, it's difficult for us to totally understand, but I think historically, we have to trust in the sovereignty of God that he's working out something greater. That yes, there is justice, and in some cases, it's instant justice. There is rebellion. Genesis reminds us that the world had become wicked in Genesis 6. In Genesis 15, he says he waited 600 years for the repentance. 600 years God waited. He waited, he waited, he desired. And so we have to include all of those ideas and thoughts in this concept of warfare, of inheriting a land and fighting a battle. That's the historical. But we know the spiritual for us The principle that we draw from the text is not fight a battle with the world. We are not at war with the world. We're not at war with people. We're not out to destroy anybody. We're out to show what Jesus did. The kingdom is of greater quality. The kingdom is about a spiritual kingdom of bringing Christ's love, his presence, his rest into the South Bay and into the world. It's totally different. Christ fulfills The plan that God had set out in the Old Testament. And we have to understand it that way. And yet there will be a battle. And our temptation is to pull back, not move forward, and and hold tight to what we have. God says, I will not abandon you. I will be with you. I will not fail you. God says, I have given it to you. It's God's war. It's not ours. God is with you. We know that. So we move forward. And the fourth thing is, is a response. And this is exciting. Look at it. There's two of them. Joshua chapter 1, verse 6. Be strong and courageous, for you shall give this people possession of the land. And then in verse 9, I have commanded you, be strong and courageous. Why? How, How are we strong and courageous? We are strong and courageous because we believe in the promise of God. We don't just muster up strength on our own. It's not what we do inside of us. It's believing in a promise that God had established many years before that. God had promised this through various covenant relation, covenants with his people, through Noah and Moses, David, Abraham. These were great men of faith that God said, I promise that I will bring you and help you become great so that you can be a blessing. I will accomplish this. And their strength and their courage was in God's promise. Whenever you put your strength and courage in what God says, you will find true strength and courage. You will strengthen, you will find an inner strength that will enable you to move forward with what God has for you. But the second thing is, I notice here, is this idea of meditate, verse 8. By the way, today is January 1st. What's the day? January 8th. It's 1-8. So think of it this way. 1-8 is a critical verse this morning for chapter 1. This book of the law, you shall meditate on it day and night. It shall not depart from your mouth. So that you will be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and then you will find success. Success is found in meditation in God's Word. And meditation, 
as an Old Testament concept is to think of the things of God. They thought of the Old Testament. They thought of the laws of God. They, they retold the stories of God. As they retold the stories and reminded themselves of what God had already told them, they were meditating on God. That was meditation. That was the book of the law. They were remembering who God is. And as they did that, they found success because they believed in who God is. Let me give you a story. We are on our way home from our family vacation. We go down to Mexico every year. It's a great time of just pulling away. I sit on the beach for several days, maybe four, sometimes even five hours. Listen to Fernando Ortega, one of my favorite musicians. Just totally ministers to me. Every one of his songs. Read, pray, journal, think through the year. Things just come to me. God just speaks to me. It's just, it's just I feel filled up. It's a, great, it's a great week. Well, the way down was a little bumpy. And I, I don't like bumps in the air. So I got in the airplane after this wonderful week, and I prayed, God, I, I just pray for smooth skies. And the captain comes on the airplane as everybody's getting situated. It's going to be a great day to fly. I'm thinking, this is awesome. Thank you, Lord. And he begins to talk a little bit about the flight. I nudge Denise and I go, oh my gosh, that's Paul Pettit. I know the pilot. I know this guy. I've mountain biked with him. We were, we were in a small group together in Orange County. I, I've been on men's retreats. With him. We've sat and prayed together. He took me to the hospital when he took me down a mountain too fast. And I went over the handlebars and, and broke my arm. And he's the guy that drove me there and stayed with me. But we connected. We, we, we were together in ministry. We loved one another and families. But I know Paul. I know this man. He's not just a captive on an airplane. He's a man of integrity. He is truly a man. Of, I know how he treats his wife. I know how he loves his family. I know how he travels and how he's careful as a man of God, a man of integrity when he's on the road. I know his plan. I've been with him. I know him. I knew he was in the, uh, in the Air Force. He is a very good pilot. He could do anything he wants with this airplane and land it safely. This is the right guy to fly this plane. And all of a sudden, a peace came over me. I know the captain of this plane. And that's who God is in this. We meditate on who God is. And the greater you know God, the more you will be able to trust him with where he wants you to go. And you cannot trust him this morning unless you are sure you know God. And for some of you, you need to receive him first and say, God, I want to know you. I want to know who you are. I want to invite you into my life. And for others, I want to know you better. I want to know you deeper. I cannot move forward in trusting you with my life unless I know who you are. It's meditation, becoming strong and courageous on the promises of God. As we close this morning, I asked Dave to cue up a beautiful song, Lord of Eternity, by Fernando Ortega. It's the story of wandering. In Psalm 27, one thing that I've asked from the Lord that I shall seek, that I might dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to dwell in his temple, and then he will lift me up on a rock. 
the one thing David wanted in all of his life was to dwell in the temple of God, to find his rest, to find rest. So let's this morning end by finding that rest as we listen and contemplate the words of this absolutely, absolutely beautiful song. Um, A strong leader, compelling objective, a war to be fought, a response to be all in. Albert Einstein said, life is like riding a bicycle. To keep your balance, you must keep moving forward.